0: Would you take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter three this morning? John chapter three. Uh, we're going to consider the first eight verses this morning in in John three. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a stack of black hardcover Bibles in the back. Feel free to go pick one of those up and and have these words in front of you this morning, because I because I think that it's going to be important for you to see. I, I kind of say this a lot, but I think it's important for you to see. Um how Jesus and Nicodemus's interaction play uh, it, them itself out here in these verses this is not an uncommon passage of scripture I think that it's one that's relatively common uh, especially when we hear the name Nicodemus because we know that that's the that's the setup into one of the most famous if not the most famous verses in all of scripture um, at least in 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 modern Christianity which is John 316. Um, but we're not going to get there now we're going to Take a few weeks and and lead into those verses. And we got Easter coming up in in two weeks, um, and so we're gonna look here this morning at the first eight verses, and then take off bite off another chunk uh, in next week, and then and then there'll be Easter, and then we'll get to get to John three sixteen and what follows that that verse. John three though this morning beginning in verse one, and uh, we're gonna read through verse eight. If you have one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, you will find the sermon text on page 1054. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As you spend time in God's Word, as you spend time in the Bible as a, as a Christian, you come to realize that God has revealed um, not everything all in one quick burst, but He's revealed His plan and His plans over over time. I mean, it doesn't all happen at immediately in one in one shot. This is uh, what we would call a term that we call progressive revelation, which is just a, simply means that God reveals His plans uh, over time, progressively. In the Old Testament, God makes covenants and promises with His people. Uh, he gives them promises and he makes covenants with them um and, uh, and and through those promises we learn more about God's plan uh and uh, f- to redeem his people uh, and when we get to the new testament then we're told that Jesus is the fulfillment he's the fulfillment of those promises and and those covenants and and we're told then how we should live in light of these fulfillments so but they all find their finalization their final realization in the person of Jesus Christ now now that's a very simplified I boiled that down but that's a very simplified understanding of of Genesis through the New Testament Um, but when we get to John's gospel we, we begin to get a fuller picture of what's happening and we're going to see that happening throughout John's gospel where we find out more and more about how Jesus is fulfilling these promises of God and showing us how God intends to redeem his people how he intends to to make them whole again and how he intends to bring them back to himself what i'm not saying is that uh that that numbers of genesis and exodus leviticus and numbers are 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 unimportant. What I'm saying is they just don't give us a full, the fullest picture. They're pointing forward to something, and we find what that something is in the New Testament. They're pointing forward to Jesus. We're actually going to see Jesus um, uh, reference the book of Numbers in, in verse 14 next week um, and show us how he is the fulfillment of what's described in, in Numbers. And so progressive revelation just means that God's ultimate plan is revealed over time. Instead of in one quick burst. If I could give an example of this, think about your education. When you start in kindergarten, you start to learn your numbers, right? And you may do some simple arithmetic in kindergarten. But uh, when you get to first grade, you don't move on immediately to calculus. Right? There's progression that happens. You, you have to learn a lot of other things over the course of probably at least the next decade to get to the point where you can do calculus. Um, progressive revelation, progressive steps that you have to take between learning what your numbers are and doing calculus. Um, for centuries, there's a... Classical approach to education, and it sort of relied on three um, key elements to learning. Um, These three elements were called the trivium, and the trivium consists of these three things, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, which is the way that it was described. So grammar, when when I say the word grammar, I don't just mean like English grammar as it relates to language, but grammar refers to the building blocks the building blocks of of everything, of everything that uh, that that uh, that is, each subject has building blocks, so to speak, as the fundamental rules of each subject. So it's just the the basics. What what are the what are the elements that we're working with? But then we move on into logic, and logic is the ordered relationship or of the particulars of each subject. So you have those building blocks that you learn in grammar, and then you start to understand how they interact with one another, how they mingle together, and how they actually give us a better understanding of how the world works, how they interact together. Uh, Rhetoric, then, is how grammar and logic of each subject is clearly expressed. So once you begin to understand how the elements and the building blocks of a particular subject work, then then you begin to to communicate it. Communication is a key step in understanding and, and education. Not only do you know about the thing, but you can talk about it. You can have a casual conversation over dinner about the thing which you have learned about. God's Word works similarly. It's a similar process. God doesn't give us calculus in Genesis 1.1. He, he starts by giving us building blocks and an understanding of who he is. He's the creator of everyone and everything. That's where we begin in Genesis chapter 1. We begin understanding that in the beginning, God created. That's an essential building block to understanding who God is. God is the creator. And then as we walk through Scripture, we, we understand more and more of why that's important. Because not only did he create everyone and everything, but that then means that everything, everyone and everything belongs to him. That everyone and everything owes them their allegiance, because apart from him, you and I wouldn't even exist. And so we build these understandings and we understand how they interact with one another. As we work through God's word, that becomes clearer and clearer. And so when we get to the Gospel of John, as we've been for quite some time now, but as we get to the Gospel of John, Jesus, uh, and we begin to see this even more so here in chapter 3 than we've seen in the first two chapters, Jesus pulls back the curtain and begins to show us how these things work together. He begins to show us how everything that came before is going to find its fulfillment of him. Things start to drop into place when we get to chapter 3, and they will continue to until his death, burial, and resurrection that we see at the end of uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that came before, and he's the answer to all of what God has said previously and how it all fits together. there's like thinking about the theme of education. I think in my own education, um, everywhere from my elementary school age years through uh, my master's degree like i i think that um i always encountered this question in my own head and in from other people as well but the question that i felt like was always being asked is what's going to be on the test what's going to be on the test what do i need to know to be on the test and so, like, I wanted the professors or the instructors, the teachers, to boil everything down to a couple key points, so that I could test well and move on. Obviously, that's not the goal of education, and I sort of, as as an adult now, regret that approach to my own education. But, but I, I think, I think, and I say that because I think that that's the way that many Christians, or how maybe we're bent to approach the Christian life. Give me the bullet points, so I can pass the test. And when I get to the end of my life, when I die, then I'll go to heaven. But that's not at all uh, what we should do with scripture. The gospel, so we want to have it reduced just to a few quick points. Just tell me what I need to know so that I can squeak by and get to the next next level. Again, I think this is how we're bent. I think this is what our flesh wants. Um, but as we consider, and this is all set up, I'll tell you how this all relates to our text this morning in just a second. But I think maybe even our society caters to this a little bit because we have microwaves, right? You just pop the thing in the microwave and you hit one minute and then you have food and you eat it. Um, and so we want to say just like just give me the quickest way possible under smallest understanding that I need to have in order that I might I might get through to the next thing, right. This is not the way that scripture is intended to work though. Um, Paul, tells uh, his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He says all of scripture. He says not just the bullet points here and there. The, The Christian life can't be reduced to Bible cliff notes. Can't do it. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way that God intended it to be. The, the Christian life is designed to be a, a continual drilling down into the depths of who God is. I had a conversation after the first service. And, and the idea is that God um, would be continually showing us through his word who he is in his, infin- in, in his infinite goodness and his character that the depths of which cannot be plumbed we can't get to the bottom of it. We can't accumulate enough knowledge to know who God is. And not only that, not, that's not even just limited to this life. That's limited to eternity. To know God is to uh, to embark upon an eternal quest of understanding an infinite being. And there is one response to that. And that one response is worship. It, I can know everything about a subject in theory but I can't know everything about God even if given an eternity to do so that is an incredible truth and it should drive us to worship but, again, in our microwave quick fix society, we want to just get the thing and just give me the bullet points so that I can get to the next thing and then, and then go about my life in the way that I want to order it. But it can't be reduced to cliff notes. The good news of Jesus Christ needs to be drilled down into our hearts, completing and equipping us as we read, as we meditate, as we contemplate, as we consider God's word given to us. Um, <clears throat> J.I. Packer Writes this, he says, the whole story of of the Father's Christ exalting plan of redeeming love. This is the story that we're going to begin to unpack a little bit more here when we get to uh, John chapter 3. The, the whole story of the Father's Christ-exalting plan of redeeming love from eternity to eternity must be told of the, the radical reorientation of life for which the gospel calls will not be understood and the required total shift from man-centeredness to God-centeredness and more specifically from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness will not take place. We need the whole thing, is what he's saying. We we can't just do the bullet points. We need the whole thing. We need all scripture breathed out by God. Because only through it, may we be complete and equipped for every good work. So why am I saying all this? Because how does this intersect with John chapter three? So the man that we meet here, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. You saw my bad like earth, wind, fire title a moment ago. I don't know if you picked up on it. It's 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 kind of a, a dad joke, which I've been leaning into hard these days. Um the uh <laughs> the reason I'm saying Nicodemus is a a Pharisee, which means that he's a very learned man. He's a very learned individual he knows a lot of stuff he knows his Old Testament and he understands it very very well and people would have thought uh, that this guy was good like he 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 had what it took to uh, to be a to be a, a really influential and if not potentially righteous individual in society. but he had more to learn. There was more to be revealed to him. And through this interaction, Nicodemus would see, and we through him would see that Jesus, or begin to see that Jesus is God's final act of his plan of redemption. That Jesus is the final act of God's plan of redemption. And so, Through Jesus, God is going to redeem a people for himself. He's going to set them apart. He's going to to put them in a position where his purposes will be fulfilled through them. There isn't more coming after Jesus. That's what's beginning to be unpacked here. When Jesus said on the cross, we're celebrating Good Friday in a couple weeks, when Jesus says on the cross it is finished, it is actually finished. There's not more. The sin is paid for. It's dealt with. And because Jesus is perfect, perfect sinless son of God, um, sin couldn't hold him and he came back on the third day. So for the rest of our time, though, I want to unpack what we see in these eight verses here. I want to explore how Jesus begins to clarify that finalization of God's plan of redemption. How does that actually play itself out, and how is he showing us um, uh, what he came to do? So he introduces one concept here for us, a a new concept for us, and, and then he begins, and then he shares where it comes from. So the new concept is new birth, spiritual life that comes through new birth, and then where it comes from, what's the origination of this new birth. So the first thing he does, though, is he he shows us new birth. There's an important concept in John's gospel. If you remember back to uh, John chapter one, verse 13, and we'll reference this a little bit later, but um, we see that that language there who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God who were born. So so John teases that in chapter one and then gets us here where he's going to flesh it out a little bit more. What does that look like? What does that mean? So Jesus introduces with Nicodemus, he introduces new birth. And if you'll remember back to last week, we we discussed faith. And if you go back up the page to chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, you'll you'll remember that there are those who believed in his name, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them, as opposed to those in chapter 1 who believed in his name, who were given the right to become children of God. Now, the difference between chapter 1, those who are given the right to become children of God, and those who Jesus didn't entrust himself to, is that those who Jesus didn't entrust himself to were were basing their faith on the signs of Jesus exclusively. That, that's Nicodemus. That's where he is when this interaction begins. He, he begins from a place of having observed Jesus' signs, but that's all that his faith is, consists of now. And he, he makes this statement. He makes this statement. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are... A teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, this requires at least some faith to say, but it's not saving faith because, again, I mentioned this last week, but but the, the this statement uh, can be made in our world in the 21st century by a, a Muslim. A Muslim can affirm all of these things about Jesus, that he's a teacher, that he's from God, that he did signs, and that God is with him. And, and so what John, that's not, that's not enough is what, what's being said here. The, the belief, the faith that's required, saving faith that is required uh, needs to be based on more than just the signs that Jesus does. It's sort of a cursory um, admitting that Jesus is a teacher, that he did sign. And so what John, the gospel writer, does is to use this meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus to further elaborate, to tell us more about what is needed beyond just seeing signs. And the question is, what's needed? And the answer is to be born from above, to be born of water and the Spirit. So what is that? what does that mean, though? What is that about? When Nicodemus makes this claim, he says, we know you're a teacher from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus answers and says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he restates in verse five, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now those two statements again they look a bit different but they're intended to communicate the same truth. They're communicating the same truth. Unless one is born again, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, these two things are indicating spiritual spiritual birth and a life, new life being given. Our Bibles translate Jesus's first statement here, born again. And now that 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 phrase is something that's made its way into, into Christian's vernacular quite a bit. Like, we talk about being born again. Um, and sometimes that's not very clearly defined. But there's actually a play on words here that we might miss in our English translation. That, that you must be born again can also easily be translated or understood as you must be born from above. Now, Jesus obviously meant one thing. He meant you must be born from above. But uh, Nicodemus takes the very literal. You must be born again, and so he takes these two. He takes that, and then he asks this follow-up question to the first statement. He says, "How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born?" And so Jesus offers it again, says the same thing with different language to clarify. Um, he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one was born of water." in the spirit, um, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't get what Jesus is saying here. He's confused by Jesus' words. It could mean born again, born from above. Jesus means born from above. He takes it to mean born again. Nicodemus wrongly assumes that Jesus is speaking about physical birth. Because, I mean, the answer to his question is obviously no. It's sort of a rhetorical question. It's a silly one, right? No, you can't get back in your mother's womb and be born again that doesn't it doesn't work that way and nicodemus knew that but jesus is talking about something different entirely he's talking a different kind of birth the one that is and then what he says in the second statement is of water and the spirit now, we're going to get more information about the Spirit and why he uses that language in verse 8. But, but the water component is one that's been hotly contested. But the reason that Jesus says water here, I think, is because he wants to uh, point Nicodemus back to something that he knows really well, which is the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, water is, is a symbol of renewal, it's a symbol of refreshing, it's a re- symbol of, of um, cleansing. And so this was a simple way of getting his point across. You need something new. You need to be renewed. You need to be cleansed. Considering Nicodemus as his audience, this was a religious and learned man who knew his Old Testament well. And so Jesus seeks to clarify here by saying this. One must be born of water and the spirit. Otherwise, he can't enter the kingdom of God. The, the real kicker here, though, comes in verse 6. And this is the second thing. This is how Jesus begins to communicate where this being born from above comes from, which kind of is implied. But again, Nicodemus is thought being born again. So he, he begins to clarify then where this new birth comes from. If you look at verse 6, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Therefore, in order to give have spiritual birth or new birth, you the spirit is the one who must give it. So the spirit gives birth to the spiritual. We get this. This makes perfect sense because um, cows can't give birth to walruses, right? Like generates like. Cats can't give birth to elephants, right? The, the thing that, when you were born, like on your birthday, right, you were born in the flesh. I've, I've observed children being born um, on a couple of occasions, and um, they were all born in the flesh. They all came out with legs and arms and a head, and they were made of organic material. Right? So the flesh gives birth to flesh. We get that. And so the spirit then must give birth to the spiritual. So when when you were born, like on your birthday, the question is, well, like what about spiritually? How does that how does that engage? And the question is, or the answer to that question is that actually when you were born in the flesh, there was no spiritual life. You were actually spiritually dead. Paul makes this clear in Romans 5 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, th- this one man, Adam, when we were all born in the flesh, we were born into him. But what we needed was to be born into Jesus. We needed spiritual birth to be joined together with, with Christ in order that our sin might be dealt with. Paul goes on in Romans 8 verses 3 through 6, he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In order to walk according to the Spirit, you must be born of the Spirit. In order to have a spiritual mindset, to set your mind on spiritual things, you must be born of the Spirit. Because unless you were born from above and of water in the Spirit, like Jesus says here in John 3, you're spiritually dead. And it's pretty hard to walk and to set your mind on something. It's pretty hard to, to, to live a life that is spiritually in tune when you're dead. And when I say pretty hard, I just mean impossible. This spiritual birth comes from above and is of the Spirit. That's where it comes from. So Jesus introduces the idea of new birth, spiritual birth. And then he also tells us that it comes from above and it is of the Spirit. The implication being, it doesn't come from you. Nicodemus, it doesn't come from you. You're a learned man. You know your Old Testament. You understand well the things of God as they've been revealed to us in the Old Testament. But that is not what gives you spiritual life. Again, John says it right away in the prologue. In chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to... To become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your family. It doesn't come from trying harder and doing better. Note, note though, in verses three and five, again the the outworking of this. Without spiritual birth, without being born from above, without being born of water and the Spirit, you cannot do two things. He says you cannot see the kingdom of God, and in verse 5, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you're not spiritually alive. And if you're not spiritually alive, then you're spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually dead, then you cannot see or enter into spiritual realities. There's no manipulating this event. And this is where verse 8 comes in. Spiritual birth comes from the Spirit. In verse 8, Jesus talks about the wind. And the, here's another play on words here, but the the wind here that he refers to is the same word in the original language as spirit. So when Jesus says this, he he says that it the wind blows where it wishes. Again, same word as spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus tells us that we don't know where the wind come from. We don't know where the wind is going. You may be able to hear it. But ultimately, it goes where it pleases. Being born of the Spirit is only something that can be done by the Spirit. Like generates like. Being born of the Spirit is only something that can be done by the Spirit. Flesh and the sin that corrupts flesh can't give birth to spiritual life. So being born again, what Jesus says, or being born from above, is a work of the will of the Holy Spirit. So this, this, takes, this whole passage makes a substantial claim then about what we can do to bring about spiritual life in ourselves. And just as you had no ability to affect spiritual life or uh, physical life, just as you had no effect in bringing about your own birth, you didn't conceive yourself. You didn't, I said this in the first service and it sounded weird, but I'm going to say it again. You didn't plug in the umbilical cord and like have a quick lunch. Like you didn't have any, you didn't have any ability to, to do that. Your growth and development and, in, in utero was not as a result of your your will. And so similarly what Jesus is saying is you can't, you did not, nor can you affect your own spiritual birth. It came to you like the wind. It made you alive. Praise God. You were born not of, the, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so Again, here's the statement that I said at the beginning. Jesus, in Jesus we find the final act of God's plan of redemption. And now, that's an easy thing to say, but I want you to think about that statement. It's on the screen. In Jesus we find the final act of God's plan of redemption. That's an easy thing to say, but the implications of actually making that statement are vast. They're, they're, They're really actually pretty hard because it begins to pull at us immediately because the implications of making that statement are the fact that all of a sudden we don't become the master of our own destiny i I like being in control i do like in uh in 16 17 years of being a christian like the the primary point of sanctification is understanding that i'm not in control and that really makes me angry a lot and so the, 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 my wife is laughing. So that affirms it. Um, but in the world we live in, this is where it hits home because in the world we live in, it's not uncommon to hear something along the lines of you should bet on yourself. You should bet on yourself because only you can put in the hard work. Only you can ensure that you travel the right path. Only you can control your own destiny. And, and that message has been come embedded in us for a long time. And it's not so dissimilar from the world to which Jesus came and the, the communication that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus, by all rights, the society around him should have bet on himself. He was in good shape. He knew the scriptures. He had an education. He was deeply religious. People look to him for these things. But what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, despite all of that, you cannot affect or bring about the spiritual life that you need. And neither can you or I. But the Holy Spirit, who would be sent by the Son, we'll see that transpire later in the gospel, is able to bring about a new birth and spiritual life for all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds, no matter what. So again, to make the statement, Jesus is God's final act of God's plan of redemption means that you're not the sequel, and I'm not the sequel to that plan. You're not the one who's going to add to what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, the flip side is if you've clamped onto that reality, as hard as that reality is for me to digest, and likely for you as well, if you clamped onto that reality, though, it brings great comfort. Because the more I walk through my Christian life in the last 16 or 17 years, the more I walk through that Christian life, the more I realize how deep a hole I was in with my sin. How much it impacted and affected me even to this day and how how much, how much much is required to move out and beyond that conditioning. My condition prior to Christ was desperate. It was a hole that I could not get myself out of. You can say that you were spiritually dead and you need spiritual life, but the Spirit continues to show you, through God's Word, just how serious that state was, how serious that death was, and just how glorious it is that you are granted a new birth through Him. And this is really sort of the intersection here where we get to the Lord's table together and and participate in that event together as a congregation. Because there's the recognition now that that the thing that we need to have spiritual life came to us in the form of Jesus' death. In order to live and to be fully alive, not just physically but spiritually as well, Jesus' death is the point that brings that life to us. And so we're going to celebrate the new life that comes through Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate that new life um, by remembering his death that gave us that life. And that's what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We recognize the death of Jesus Christ and that through his death, we have life. Because, because, his body was broken when it should have been ours, and his blood was shed when it should have been ours. As payment for our sin, our body and our should have been broken, our blood should have been spilt, but he did it for us. So we're going to turn our attention then to the Lord's table. If you haven't picked up elements, they're right behind the door back there. Feel free to do that at any point um, over the course of the next few, few minutes. But Paul... In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and, uh, uh, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to proclaim together the Lord's death that gave us life until he comes. And the only way that he could come back is because he's he's alive. Because the body that was broken was perfect and the blood that was shed was for the forgiveness of our sins, the only blood that could pay for our sins fully. And because of the perfect life that he lived, Death could not hold him because death is the result of sin. And so he walked out of the grave. And so we rejoice and we declare, we proclaim his death that gave us life until he comes. This is uh, something that we do celebrating the Lord's Supper together, taking and eating the bread and the, the juice is something we do together as a church regularly. Um, we, we ask that uh, if you don't know what it means to have new life in Christ, that uh, that you would just take a moment and just use this time to quietly reflect but don't participate in the elements. Um, it's uh, it's important that you recognize that this is for followers of Jesus and those who have dedicated their lives to him because they've received spiritual life and new birth. Um, I'm gonna pray in a second and Philip is gonna play, but, but when he does, just feel free in your own timing uh, after you've thought and engaged um, with the Lord in prayer, uh, you can take the elements on your time if you've got kids in here, uh, it, we always say this, but it's important for you to remember that unless they've made a credible profession of faith, don't invite them to participate um, and just use this as an opportunity of what we're doing right now to, to share the good news of the gospel with them later over lunch or in the car on the way home. Good, let me pray. And, uh, and when you're prepared in your heart, go ahead and receive those elements. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death that gives us life. Thank you for the broken body and the shed blood that ensures that we will spend eternity with you. God, we pray that, that as we participate together in this event, God, that you would unify us as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been made whole. God, we thank you for that new life that you've given to us Cause us not to uh, be those who rely on our own strength, but this week who are wholly dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.